So, you know, I've, I have been feeling a lot of pressure lately, especially since I've turned 30 to get married and to have kids. Actually, no, I think I've been feeling it for a few years, but turning 30 was kind of like the last storm. Is that pressure that like your family is putting on you or is it your own pressure, like your own internal biological clock? I think it's a bit of both. And then also societal pressure, right? Which definitely does impact. I'm definitely, I'm sure my internal pressure is impacted by or influenced by societal pressure. Ever since I was a kid, I always wanted to get married and have children. And I still don't have either of the two. (laughs) And like, as you get older, it's, you know, it's awkward. It's weird because you see other people doing those things. And then I feel like even if you yourself aren't sure if you want them, it's still awkward to see other people getting married and having kids and like doing the quote unquote, like adult things. Right. I guess, but at the same time for me, yeah, I do have that pressure that is building up um, day by day, but (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's not, (laughs) yeah, just going to explode. Huh? Anyway, you know, what do you do when you want to have a family, want to have children, but you don't have a partner? I only know like a couple of people who have made a decision on their own to have children, be a single parent. Yeah. And also, why does a family have to be two parents and at least one kid right i mean it doesn't have to be no it doesn't have to be there's all kinds of families yeah i think when yeah okay when most people think about families or a family you think about multiple parents and then you think about at least one child but that's not always how things end up for some people no it's because and sometimes it's out of choice It's not always because they couldn't find a husband or they couldn't find a wife or a spouse or a partner. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you just want to have kids and you don't really necessarily want the partner. There's, there's nothing wrong with, I don't think there's anything wrong with being a single parent, even if you've made that decision, you know, on your own. I mean, as long as you can support the child or children, as long as you can support your family, it's, it's fine. Yeah. And yourself, if you can support well, yourself. Yeah. You, you should also support yourself. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing then too is how do you go about becoming that single parent, right? If it's your decision to become one, how do you go about it? Do you have an agreement with somebody you know that like, hey, like, are you going to be my my helper, my sperm donor, whatever you wish to call that person? Do you go to a sperm bank? You know, I mean, there's all, I guess there's a, there's a few different ways to, to go about it. Cassie decided to become a single parent by choice due to obstacles in her life. She overcame these obstacles and was blessed with her firstborn child.
I'll just kind of tell you a little bit about myself and how I got to this journey. Um, I grew up, like I said before, not seeing any really great examples of romantic relationships or marriage. My parents divorced when I was six years old. And even before that, even when they were married, my dad was carrying on affairs, one of which two children from one before I was born and one a couple of years after I was born. So that wasn't obviously great. And so he was always in and out, even when my parents were married, because he was kind of living a double life. And then my, um, even further back from that, my grandparents were married um, for many years, but my grandfather always carried on affairs. He never had children outside the marriage, but still he was a good dad and a good provider, but not the best husband. I, in my early thirties, discovered that I had some fertility issues, some things that would cause challenges in terms of having kids in the traditional way. So I knew that I would have to probably use IVF or IUI or some fertility treatment to have children. I was in a long-term relationship for six years with, I guess, my college sweetheart. And when that relationship ended, I realized that, you know, the years are going really quickly and I need to do something. But I still didn't make a a decision at that point about um, single motherhood. I was in another relationship for a few years and we actually started the fertility treatments together. And when that relationship didn't work at that point, I was 35 going on 36. And I just decided I don't want to keep waiting to see if something, you know, some other relationship starts and is great. Um, because again, I, I never really saw a good relationship. So it just made me think that's probably not going to happen for me. So I gave myself a little bit of time to grieve the loss of that relationship and then got started on my journey to single motherhood. So I had already known at that point that I'd have to do IVF, which is in vitro fertilization because of, I had to have surgery to have my fallopian tubes removed because they were uh, damaged. So I, um, the fertility clinic kind of walks you through the whole process. And so you get your own personal nurse, of course, your doctor, but there's a team of doctors who uh, you meet with and, and who work on your case, but you get your own nurse. And I told my nurse that I had decided that I was going to do this on my own. They gave me a couple of um, sperm banks to, or cryobanks to reach out to. And I found that California cryobank had what I was looking for. And that being the most important thing to me was that they had open ID donors, which means that the child is able to meet that person when they're 18, if they choose to do so. So I got started with that process, but I'm 
I'm obviously really thankful that this is even an option because I don't know that traditional parenthood or marriage relationships is for everybody. I'm not sure that it's for me, but I always knew as a very young girl that I wanted to be a mother. That was a mother and a therapist. Those were the only two things I was sure of. And once I got my clinical licensure and became a full psychotherapist, I was like, the only thing left to do is become a mother. So yeah, if I think back, even as a little girl, I think I told you guys this when my friends and I would play house, my husband was never even a factor in make-believe. It wasn't something that was ever really important to me. If I met someone and and things were right, then yeah, I I would have gotten married. But but the most important thing was being a mom. So thanks, Cassie. So it seems like motherhood was really the only thing that was missing, right, for you after you got your um, MSW and you got licensed. So what was it about motherhood that really wanted you to become uh, a part of it? Um, That's a great question. I think, you know, I like I said, the marriages in my life that I saw weren't great but I saw some really great mothers and their relationships with their kids. And I thought, even like I said, if I think back to, you know, very early in my childhood, I wanted that. My mom always seemed really happy to be with me. And my grandmother loved being with her kids, uh, even though they were adults, obviously I didn't see them when they were little with her, but um, she always said that she was so thankful to be a mom, that it was really the greatest gift. And as I got older, my mom told me more about her own struggles um, to have children. She had some miscarriages before me, one after me, and then a stillbirth. And so I was, I'm the only child that she had that survived and was born. And just, yeah, just the way that she and my grandmother and my cousins and aunts would talk about motherhood. So, and being a single mom, and um, you know, having go going through IVF, what has um, been most people's reaction? Um, I was pleasantly surprised. My family was super supportive. My mom, my uncle, uh, and my church. When I told them. They were just like, oh, okay. And everybody kind of just went back to what they were doing. It was like, congratulations. We can't wait to meet the baby. And then I remember a couple of the older women in my church who have known me since I was little were like, oh, wait, if there's no father, that means that we get this baby all to ourselves. Like we don't have to share the baby with anybody. So this is great. And my, I did have some family members that were, a little caught off guard, I guess, is the right way to put it, and had a lot of questions. My godmother in particular had a ton of questions because, she, you know, it just wasn't something that she had grown up hearing about. It just wasn't the norm. It's not what she's seen. But I only had one family member who I had told her 
um, ahead of time that I used a donor, but she thought that I had broken up with my ex and was calling him a donor and in like kind of anger or, you know, like, I guess, like the young people say, like throwing some shade, at him, but I wasn't, I literally meant that like I got a donor. So when she found out that it was that I used a, an anonymous male donor, she had a lot of questions and was asking me, didn't I think that was selfish and it's not fair to the kid to not have a dad. And it was actually her daughter. She has an, her oldest child is in her 20s. And she was there at the time. And she said to her, don't you think that's wrong what Cassie's doing? Like, and, you know, the, the her child is going to want to know where's my dad and stuff. And she said, I actually don't think it's wrong because she's going to f- figure out how she wants to explain it. She already said, you know, she talked about meaning me. I had talked about some of the terminology and how you don't use the word dad. She said, I don't think it's wrong because at least her kid is never going to feel like there's somebody out there that just didn't want me. Right. Like I, my mom was in a relationship with this person said she was pregnant and then they kind of just disappeared. She said, I feel like that probably feels a lot different than my, my siblings lived experience. And that was really profound for me because I had gone through those struggles myself with my own dad. So, yeah, so it was important to me or it meant a lot to me to hear her say that. And it, yeah, so that, that was the only not so great reaction that I got, but everyone else was really supportive and just excited for me that I was finally going to be a mom. So you talked a little bit about your family, your mother and your, and your father, I guess, can you tell us a little bit more about your relationship with your father when you were growing yeah. up? Um, my dad wasn't, and, and is still now somebody who is a lot of fun. He was a really fun dad. He would play Barbies with me and tea party and take me to the park and, he was very gentle. I would sometimes sneak and watch scary movies when I wasn't supposed to. And my mom would say, well, now you just have to sleep by yourself and deal with it because I told you not to watch those things. And my dad would come back in the room and whisper to me, she's so mean. I'm going to come lay with you. And he would come sleep with me until I fell asleep. But you know, now as an adult, I can look back and realize that he was that was all he was, was fun. He was really just like a a big kid and didn't take responsibility for a lot of things. And when anything serious would come up, um, my mom would tell him that I went to private schools when we lived in New York and my mom would tell him, you know, Cassie's school fee is this much, you know, how much do you want to give me towards it? Or we're going on vacation. Let's start putting some money together to start saving up for our Disney trip this year. And he disappeared for two or three weeks and then come back, I guess, when he figured like, all right, she's probably forgotten about that. She's not going to ask me for anything, you know, or even if it didn't have to do with money, but it was just something important, you know, a doctor's appointment or my christening. My, my family often tells the story about how 
my mom and my godmother had to go looking around New York, the, around the Bronx for him the night before. So I think there are some wonderful fathers out there. But I guess because of how I grew up with my dad so in and out of my life, I don't think that you have to have a dad to to be to turn out okay. Um, at this point now, my father is in his mid seventies. Um, he had is recovering from cancer, and we're starting to to try to get some type of a, a relationship, and he has been. For the last few months that I've been back in contact with him, more consistent, and, and he understands that obviously if he isn't, then I'm not going to have him around because I wouldn't let him do to Ivy what he did to me. But yeah, that's been my understanding of, of or my relationship with my dad. And I think I told you guys this when we spoke before, but I can remember like being at my friend Danielle's house when I was probably about five or six um, before my parents got divorced. And I had spent the, um, a few days there with them and her dad went to work and he came home. He went to work and he came home. And I was like, your dad keeps coming home. And she was like, yeah, he lives here. I was like, I know, but my dad lives with me too. But sometimes he doesn't come home for a lot of days, you know, I was really little, so I probably didn't know like two weeks through. I was like, for a lot of days, he doesn't come home. And she was just like, oh, okay. And then we just went back to playing because, you know, we were kids. But I, I can remember, I can, in my mind, see us playing, kneeled down by her bed, playing with our Barbies, having that conversation. And you know, at that age, you, we only really remember things from like age five and earlier if they were of of real significance or if we had some kind of trauma. And so I think that was pretty significant because it really stayed with me like, oh, wow, what's happening in my house is probably not normal. It's probably weird. I remember you talking about you know, your mother would talk about your father in a way where it's like, oh, you know, he's just not really an adult, right? That kind of thing. Right. And, and has, now that you're an adult, has she had a conversation with you about it, her relationship with your father and, and that dynamic? Or Yes. You know, my mom never, I probably said this to you guys before, was really good about not saying anything really disparaging about my dad. But you know, now that I'm older, yes, there's obviously more that I know and understand. One of the things that I think, uh, you know, my mom will say often that led her to uh, to be in a relationship with my dad, to stay with him so long, get married to him and continue to stay even after all of the infidelity is just obviously what she saw growing up. And also the fact that she had never really dated before that. So it was like, he was really all she'd ever known. And it took her, so she'll say now, like it took me a while to recognize like, wow, not only is this not okay and fair to me, but it's certainly not fair to my kid. 
And so when she talks about that, there's, she never told me this story until I was much older, but there was um, a father-daughter breakfast at my school when I was in preschool. And um, she had gotten me, uh, when she talks about it now, she actually still gets a little tearful. She had got me a, a sailor suit um, with the blue pleated skirt and the white top and sailor tie to wear. And um, my dad hadn't been home the night before, but she called his mom's house and she said, he'll be there in the morning. Don't worry. He remembers. Of course, he didn't show up. And her mom says she sat outside the apartment building waiting for him. She said with me there with her for over an hour. And finally, she just took me back inside and she said she was sobbing because she thought, like, what am I doing to my little girl? You know, just so that I stay married and like I'm trying to give her this life that I guess you know, I have in my head how things should be, but it's not working out. And, you know, I was too little to know um, what was going on, but she said she kept thinking eventually she's going to know and like, when is enough going to be enough? And so when she talks about my dad now and, and stories like that, she says to me, like, how proud she is of me, that she knows that some days are really exhausting and hard, but that making the choice to um, not have a kid with somebody who I knew probably wasn't going to be a good dad or even a good partner uh, was really a, a really good decision to make and a sound decision. And she's just really proud of me for taking that, that route. Cassie, can you tell us uh, the process of IVF? Um, you know, how was that physically and mentally? Sure. So I am very uh, religious. I'm Episcopalian. It's similar to Catholic. <laughs> My Episcopalian friends call it like diet Catholic because we have female priests. We were, I think, the, if not the first, one of the first Christian religions to marry gay and lesbian couples. Um, so we're like Catholic light. We have some of the same beliefs as them and Sunday mass rituals, but definitely a lot more liberal uh, as a, a religion. So anyway, I'm very religious. Um, and so I know with IVF, there's no guarantees. So mentally, I, I prepared myself by praying a lot. I got on my prayer list at church. I told my priest and we prayed privately. And I did what's in the Catholic religion, it's called a novena. It's like a nine day prayer. So um, at some point later on in the process of um, IVF, when I started the hormone therapy and stuff is when I did the novena. Uh, I did one to St. Jude because he's not only the patron saint of kids, but also of hopeless things. And I thought, you know, this, again, there's no guarantees, but IVF is sometimes can feel really hopeless. And so that really, my faith got me through. 
the mental part of it. But there were certainly days that I got scared, even being somebody who's religious and has like a tremendous amount of faith. I'm human. And some days I would get scared, like, what if I'm so hopeful and I have all this faith and it still doesn't work? And I would get really scared um, thinking, like, what am I going to do if this doesn't work? Like, first of all, it's very expensive. So I had to take out a fertility loan to pay for the process because my insurance didn't at the time didn't cover anything past finding out that you need fertility treatments. So they would pay for the blood work and stuff in the beginning. And then once you find out you need interventions to have kids, then you're on your own. So I, I remember thinking like, if this doesn't work, I don't have any more money to do this. I, I then had to pay out of pocket for some of the medication and of course for the sperm that's not something that the loan covered so I I was able to do that but I just remember thinking like I'm gonna get really depressed and I would sometimes joke with my family but I was probably a little bit serious to it tell them like if this doesn't work then you guys just kind of set a schedule and everybody come visit me in the mental hospital because I'm not going to make it. <laughs> like mentally, I'm going to be done because I really like, again, the only two things I ever was sure that I wanted was to be a therapist and a mom. And you, you know, I could have looked into adoption, I guess a little more if it didn't work, but that's also super expensive. So, um, so that was the mental aspect I had like I said, my days, but for the most part, I stayed um, faithful and tried to stay busy that summer that I was doing IVF treatment, spending a lot of time with friends and family. I love movies so and the beach, so I tried to do that as often as I could that summer. And I'll, I'll talk more about the process itself, but at some point in the process before the embryo transfer, you have like a break from any fertility pills or needles. So I went to New Orleans with my friend for, I think we went for like five nights and six days or something. It was really nice. It was just a good way to relax. And I don't think during that trip, I really thought much about the fertility treatments. I tried to really focus on sightseeing and dancing and drinking and just having a good time. But as far as the, the physical part, it can be really invasive. I don't know much about IUI because I, that's when you, they, I'm trying to think how to explain it. They, there is some level of, of insemination sometimes with IUI, but there, it's a little less invasive because you still have fallopian tubes, right? And they still usually work well so they can just put the sperm in the vagina and the sperm just do their thing. They just want to make sure that it's at the optimal time, like the highest chance of fertility. But with IVF, there's usually some surgery involved at first and that's really the healing and aftercare of that can be really painful. And... So that was difficult. So when Cassie mentioned IVF, that's a term I had heard before. 
but I was still a little unsure of the actual definition. And I had never heard of IUI. So I decided to look up the definitions of each procedure. So we would all have a pretty good idea of what Cassie was actually talking about. IVF, or in vitro fertilization, is a procedure where an egg is fertilized by sperm outside of the body. The eggs are retrieved from the ovaries and the fertilized then embryo is then transferred to the uterus. IUI, on the other hand, stands for intrauterine insemination. With IUI, sperm is placed directly into the uterus with a small catheter. The idea is to improve the chances of fertilization. This is done by increasing the number of sperm that are able to reach the fallopian tubes during the time that women are most fertile. This is most often performed when donor sperm is being used. So Cassie used IVF, and that's because their fallopian tubes were damaged. So when you have damage to any reproductive organs and they may not function properly, that's when you would use IVF. So IUI is just that bit of assistance when you're using, let's say, donor sperm, right? When the sperm just need a little bit of help getting to their destination. After that, the the hormones that you have to take, the pills, I didn't have any like mood swings or anything, but I remember just feeling a lot of discomfort. You have to take estrogen and I can't remember the name of all the medications. I'm sorry, but something else helps to produce more eggs because that during a regular ovulation cycle, women produce like one egg, sometimes two, but in order to get as many eggs as possible, you need to take this medication um, in order for them to retrieve as many eggs as possible. They want to try to increase your ovulation in one cycle. And it's, I remember I went to probably like a week before I had my eggs, the egg retrieval, I went to a Yankees game with my friend and it was, I couldn't even concentrate on the game. You feel so swollen and all this pressure because now you have like all these eggs and follicles that are huge that would not have ordinarily been so big. And it feels like something pressing down on your bladder. I was walking strange. I'm sure people at the stadium like, what the hell is wrong with like if she needed a wheelchair, like just say that, dude, like stop walking like that. It was so, I was like, why did I come? But then I had the retrieval and that was, they put you to sleep for it. It's like a surgery. But afterwards I was still sore for about a week, but then I was fine. The hardest part of that was the emotional part because I would, you could hear them telling other people on the other side of the curtain, a few like beds down from you, like, oh, you got 30 eggs. That was great. Or saying to somebody, you got six and you could hear the person sound disappointed. And they're like, no, that's a great number. And I'm thinking you're lying. There's no way that's a great number. And then they came and told me I got 10. And I told the nurse, like, maybe they should go back in and and look for some more. (laughs) Maybe the doctor forgot some because 10 is not going to, is not a good number. Like I could do better. And she said that she assured me it was a great number. Um, But the reason that I felt like it wasn't a good number is because then they have to wait for those eggs to mature enough to be fertilized. 
So you wait a few days and you hear from that 10, they'll call you and say like, and you know, I don't remember my exact numbers. This was like almost three years ago, but they will call and say, well, today, you know, there's six that made it to the, the next stage and we'll check again in the next couple of days. And so I think I went in with like six that out of the 10 that were mature enough to be fertilized. So then they take the sperm, they mix it with the egg, and then they see after a few days how many have been fertilized. And they did that. And I remember them calling and telling me like, okay, now of those six that were fertilized, we only have five, but that's okay. That's enough. Let's see how they do after some more days. So we wait some more days and they call and they said, um, now we have four. I'm like, oh my God. So I remember them calling and telling me that, um, one day I, I was at work when they called. And at the time I, I was a supervisor of a, an outpatient program. So I had my own office and I closed the door and I took my um, St. Jude rosary beads and I, the floor, it was the hospital where I worked. The floor was so hard and cement. And I got down on my knees and just started praying. Like people, I, I remember saying to God, people always say that you don't give us more than we can bear. Not you know, this not working out is not something I can bear. I promise you, despite what you might think, I know you're God, you know better than me, but I promise you, I can't, I won't make it. And then I, I said my prayer to St. Jude and, and then they called and said that I had three and they were mature enough. Um, they, they were, well, they had been fertilized, but they were now those embryos were mature enough to be sent out for testing. And then you wait a few weeks before you get those results back. So I went to New Orleans and when I came back, they told me that of those three, only two of them made it through the test. One of them didn't make it. And of those two, only one came back perfectly healthy, had the highest chance of pregnancy success and no genetic issues that showed up, anything like Down syndrome or spina bifida, those things that they test for. And not spina bifida, I'm sorry, cerebral palsy, I think is one that they can test for. And so they, they did that and they said, but the other one came back inconclusive. So the doctor said, I'm going to send it back out for testing at no cost to you. Cause I'm just curious to see what result we get, but we know that this one is healthy. And I didn't want to know the sex of the baby, but the nurse, I, at the time I got a new nurse, uh, my nurse had gotten a promotion and she said, so on September 18th, we're going to transfer your healthy baby girl. I was like, oh my God, why did she do that? Cause now it felt like, of course I want a girl, right? They got, when I was little, what I, played house. I always had a daughter. And yeah, I think most most women want a girl. And um, I thought, well, now the stakes are even higher. So if this doesn't work, I'm going to be even more devastated. I felt like if I don't know the sex, then I can still, you know, pray and, and want this baby to grow and be healthy. But I didn't want to put 
too much into it, right? Like I didn't want to know the sex and name the baby and then have a miscarriage or something. So I was so upset that she told me, but I said, okay, that's fine. And I decided then that I was going to look at the list of baby names that I had been developing over like probably like an eight-year period. I had been adding to the list, taking things off. And Ivy was one of the names that I really liked. Um, And then I had in my novena to St. Jude in this nine-day prayer, at the end, you always want to let the saint know what you're going to do for them if this, whatever you're praying for works out. And I promised St. Jude that whether it was a boy or girl, I would put his name somewhere in there and always tell people about him. And um, of course, tell the child about him and all that he did for me. And so I thought Ivy Jude sounded nice. And I thought, okay, since I know your name, I'm going to start talking to you as if you are here. And so the minute I left the, from the embryo transfer that day, I got in the car and uh, my mom was driving and we put on some country music and I told Ivy, I was like, this, this is country music. And then I changed the station to pop music and I was like, this is pop and some rock music and some hip hop. And I was, I told her, you're in the car right now with your grandmother and your auntie and we all can't wait to meet you. And I just told, I talked to her every day on the way to work. And I just kept saying, all you have to do is grow and mommy will do the rest. That's it. And I really feel like it ended up being a good thing that I knew the gender and that I chose a name and yeah, just, it, it was a good thing. I mean, I know we mentioned that IVF is expensive and I know you mentioned the loans, I guess, how did the idea of of IVF come about for you? I had to because I had an ectopic pregnancy. And because of that, that just means that the baby was growing somewhere outside of the uterus. And um, I had to end up having emergency surgery because the baby was growing in my fallopian tubes in one of my fallopian tubes and the tube burst um and then so the other tube was damaged probably from the trauma of the one tube bursting and there was blood everywhere and so I I didn't have a choice so even if I were married or I had stayed with um the person I was in a relationship with at the time that was the only way that I was going to be able to um, become pregnant. Um, Is it uncommon to get pregnant during the first IVF cycle? I don't, you know what, that's a good question. I don't know the numbers, but I know that from the single moms by choice groups that I'm in and the fertility clinic, uh, when I was going through it, had a Facebook group. I know just from those women, that it's is definitely unusual. Yeah. So I definitely felt blessed by that because I know how unusual that is. People usually have to do two or three cycles. And sometimes, you know, unfortunately for some people, it's even more than that. So I think 
a really important part of the story is your daughter, right? She's the focal point. Yes. So have you thought about if you're going to tell um, your daughter her story? And if so, when when do you think is a good time? Well, part of the process of becoming a single mom by choice, the fertility clinic has you meet with their social worker. And that's one of the things that she and I talked about. And she said, she gave me some really great resources, some good tips about how to start that conversation. And one of the things she said was start it now. While you're pregnant, start practicing a kid-friendly way to explain that. Read some of the children's literature that's out there about, you know, their births, their origin story. And so I started early on and I have gotten to a place where I'm at least comfortable with what I'm telling her now. And then at the next stage of life, I'll figure out, you know, depending on Ivy and what she understands and what questions she has, but basically just that she was so wanted that even though I didn't have a husband or a partner, I went to the doctor and he helped me to find a really nice man who had one of the books talks about this. So I didn't make this up on my own, some uh, magic beans. And he helped me to, to have her. And so one of the things that is really important is not to use the word dad or donor dad, because it, it can imply to a child that there's somebody out there that is my father, but doesn't want to be my father when really it was just a helper, just this person that wants to help people to become a family. And so he helped us do that. And when she's older, if she wants to, she can meet him and say, thank you. But yeah, I've started, like I said, having that conversation with her. And it's funny because at most kids at her age will associate every man they see with dad. And she doesn't instead, because she only has uncles and no dad, every man that she sees, she, she says, that's an uncle. And every woman is, is somebody's mom. That's a mama. So she loves Daniel Tiger. And when we read his books, I'm like, that's Daniel's mommy and Daniel's daddy. And she says, no, ma, that's that Daniel uncle. <laughs> I go, okay. Yes, that's Daniel's uncle. <laughs> So I know she doesn't quite understand it yet, but she's getting there. Yesterday, my mom was actually reading it to her and she said, Daniel, dad. So, yeah. And then I have some books about different types of families. I, you know, COVID really put a wrench in in certain things, but I am, I've joined that um, single moms by choice group. Uh, that I mentioned and their kids are a little bit older but I think it's important for her to see families that look like hers families I have really close friends that I grew up with are um, two women who are married and they have a daughter Um, so she'll see families who look like the families in her storybooks um, that we have about different types of families so So yeah, we started the conversation. Yeah, and that's really important. And I was going to ask, you know, how if you do merge your professional life um, and your 
personal experience because you are a therapist. And if you've ever thought about having your own group. Yeah, it's funny that you say that. Uh, My Yeah, my family has been bringing that up a lot lately. Like, why don't you figure out a way to start some kind of even like a therapy group for single parents by choice? Because it's very different. One of my friends, thank you, teases me a lot and says like, oh, yeah, single mom by choice. I'm not sure what the difference between that and a regular single mom is, but okay. Um, But there is a difference, right? The the difference is that we made the, the conscious decision to have a child on our own, knowing that there may be some difficulties and also preparing ahead of time for that. It's a very different experience than what my mom went through um, even before the divorce, but certainly after the divorce and what, you know, some of my cousins have gone through and are still going through where they didn't expect to be single parents. And it just was kind of thrust on them. Very different. So I wanted to kind of go back to, You know, when you had mentioned, you know, your family having certain opinions about you being a single mom by choice and doing IVF. Has anyone outside of your family, have you you ever heard any criticism or comments from anyone outside of your family in regards to being a single mom by choice? I don't think so. No. Yeah, it was mainly like that one uh, cousin who, like I said, was like stunned, couldn't believe it and had all these questions but they felt more like accusations than questions at the time um she did later apologize and say that she realized and recognized that I made the right decision for myself and for my child but yeah no not any strangers that I can think of I know a lot of people uh, in the Facebook group that I'm on write often about having like close friends who will tell them like that they're selfish or, you know, have some negative opinion. If someone thinks something like in in my extended family, I don't, I don't know about it. Like no one has ever said to me or like a, a friend's parents or anything like that. I worried about that a little bit, but no one has said anything. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Do you do you think that there is a stigma attached to single moms by choice? Yeah, I, I would I would say yes. I think that um, probably more so, you know, years ago by me mentioning it in church, someone who I've known for years who's been a member of our church told me that her oldest child was through a male an anonymous male donor and that she was a single mom by choice and he's 16 or 17. So I didn't know that. And I think it's because there was some discomfort, some fear of judgment. So she just never said anything. We just, I think most of us at church just assumed that she was married or had a relationship and it didn't work out. And she was a single in church who um, she adopted a child she's white and he's black. So it was obvious that she adopted him. So we knew that, 
but we thought, I think most of us thought she adopted him and then her and her husband divorced because she just never spoke about it until I said it. And then the two of them came forward and like, yeah, we're single moms by choice too. The, the one who has the 17 year old child said that, you know, back when she did it, it really wasn't a popular thing to do. There weren't any support groups or actually there was one but of course it wasn't uh social media related it was like it, i think based in new york and um paid like a membership fee and you go to like an annual meeting or something but that was about it and you know nobody talked about it it wasn't something that you said proudly but i think if anything the stigma is that it's self-centered but i i always think that there's some selfishness in wanting to be a parent in general and bring people into this world, right? Like there, there's no time in the history of the world that's been safe and peaceful, just perfectly happy. And like, oh my God, I want to share this with somebody because it's such a perfect place to be. It's really not. So there, there's some self-centeredness in it in general. So I don't think we're any more selfish than any other parents or families. I'm going to go back to the donor and just, yeah. why did you choose that, uh, that particular donor? I'm so glad that you asked that Zoe. I was hoping that we would get to that, that we'd have time to. So it was the other reason it was really important for me to do this is not just the single motherhood, the IVF journey, but also I'm hoping that someone or some people, men of color listening, will get out there and donate sperm. Not that I, I really did not care uh, one way or the other what the donor, um, what his ethnic or racial background was. But I, was, I remember thinking if I were married or in a relationship and for some reason had to use a male donor it would be really difficult because there aren't many men of color and and I don't just mean black men I mean black men Indian men Asian men there's just not a lot to choose from there are mainly white men who donate and so that's why the donor that I chose Ivy's helper right not dad but helper uh, happened to be a white male that was part of the reason there was one guy who so the so the other thing is that if you're gonna donate and you can I don't know people's personal you know issues or reasons for not being an open ID donor but that's really important for this person to be able to look you up when they're 18 and and say thank you or ask you questions about yourself and I'm sure there's a lot of curiosity about who this person is because I chose based on who had the genetic makeup that was going to yield the safest pregnancy and the less chance of any issues for the child, like something like sickle cell or even mental health issues were taken into account. So what happens is when you choose a donor, they, they do blood work on you. Of course, the donor has had blood work done and they see who's the best genetic match. So they tell you to pick five people 
And then of those five, the genetic specialist is going to call you and go through why this person would be a good match. This one is a definite no. This one is a little, you know, uh, iffy for different reasons. And so it turned out that the person that was the best genetic match for me was this white male. And then the other thing uh, was that it was, like I said, important for me that the person was an open ID donor. Say hi. No need to get crazy. (laughs) Chandy's funny. Yes. Yes, Chandy's fun. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Hello, um, little one. Say hi. So I'm glad that you asked that, Zoe, because it's. I think it's important. Like I said, if if you're in a couple, it's probably important that the person resemble you a little bit. Thank you, guys. Um, this is this was really good to be able to talk about this, and I hope that people hear it and they get something out of it yeah yeah I, i'm sure they will yeah yeah i know i have so oh well, i'm glad I think she ended up just fine. Yeah, I I agree. I think she did. She has a cute baby. She has a good job. And she has a support system to help her take care of Ivy. So, I mean, who says that you can't be a single mom by choice? I mean, I think things are changing in society where it's more acceptable. It's becoming more common, right? That people realize they don't need to have all of these traditional things in place to have the family that they want, right? They can still have the family. Yeah. They can still have a family. Yeah. And I think it's about choice. You have more ways of doing things than you used to in the past. So it's not just having a baby the traditional way, but you could do it through IVF or you can even have a surrogate deliver your baby. It's not as though she didn't want to have that partner, right? She at, at times she did. Her relationship with her father had a profound effect on the way that she sees relationships because her father wasn't always there. Do you think that had an effect on her and how she sees the world and views relationships? I definitely do. What happens in your childhood really does determine how certain aspects of your life are going to end up or how you make decisions in certain aspects of your life. There really is no cookie cutter definition for a family, how a family is supposed to look, what a family is supposed to be. They come in all shapes and sizes. And you know, you, you've heard from Cassie's story that This is all she ever wanted. All she ever wanted was a child. And luckily for her, she was able to make that happen with the limited resources that she had. I hope that's inspiration to you all who's thinking about having a child in a non-traditional way. 
So that's going to do for this episode of Bound by the Cloak. Check out our site, social media, show notes, any updates on Cassie. And stay tuned for the next episode. We'll see you next time.